Let me begin our time with a word of prayer. God, we love you. We love your word, and there is so much richness found in your word. And God, I pray this morning as we look at this psalm that we would find comfort in it, that we would grow to know you more. I pray this in your name, amen. Amen. Maybe many of you in here are familiar with the TV show Undercover Boss. The concept of the show, there's a, a boss or a business executive who goes undercover and he acts as a trainee for a time in his company. At the very end, he comes out and he says who he is and he gives everybody a raise and everyone's crying and it's an, an, it's an exciting time. But it's really interesting to watch and see how these people start to interact with this guy differently once they know who he is. Once they finally see that the person that they're talking to is somebody who's actually in a position of superiority over them, all of a sudden the things they say change, the way they talk about him to other people changes, the way they serve him changes, everything about the work, their interaction with him is different. The more they recognize his position, the more they give him honor and respect. Today we're going to be looking at Psalm 139, and this is a psalm that puts on display the greatness of God. And my hope is the more that we get to know God and the more we understand the position he is in over us, the more that we will be able to honor him and give him respect. So if you have your Bibles and if you're turned to Psalm 139, I'm going to read the psalm in its entirety and then we are going to talk through it together. Psalm 139. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You understand my thought from afar. You scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. You have enclosed me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high, I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your hand will lead me, and your right hand will lay hold of me. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and the night is as bright as the day. Darkness and light are alike to you. For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. Your eyes have seen my unformed substance and in your book, and in, and in your book were ri- all written the days that were ordained for me when as yet there was not one of them. How precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I awake, I am still with you. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly 
and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with an utmost hatred, and they have become my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. What a beautiful psalm. This psalm is is really well known for its clear expression of the three omnis. Omni is a word that means all. It's an all-encompassing term. And it's often used uh, when you're talking in theology to talk about how God's attributes are all and they're complete in their entirety. Psalm 139 gives three attributes of God that when understood properly will help us understand how we should approach him in worship. I want to talk just briefly about what these three omnis are, and then we're going to walk through and see how this plays out. In verse 1 through 6, we see the omniscience of God. This is that God is all-knowing. He knows everything. In verse 7 through 12, David talks about the omnipresence of God, the fact that God is present everywhere. And verse 13 through 18, we see the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. And these three omnis are attributes of God that some have called the highest and most important important of all theological concepts concerning the nature of God. And I know what you're all thinking. You're thinking, oh, theological concepts? That means we're going to be talking about a lot of theology and it's going to be dry and boring. Let me assure you that the theology that we see here in Psalm 139 is anything but dry and boring. And I hope that as we explore this together, we're going to find that David, as he's communicating these things, is communicating them in a very personal way. He's talking about a very high theology of God, but he's talking about it in a way that applies directly to him. And just like the employee who suddenly recognized that they were speaking to their boss, I hope that we can suddenly recognize who this God really is and that it can change the way we worship him. One of the difficulties we have anytime we're talking about theology, and and let me just say anytime we're in the word of God, we're talking about theology, but it's difficult sometimes to connect the head and the heart. Sometimes theology is just all in the head. It's knowledge, and there's a lot of substance to it, but there's very little application. Other times we have theology that's all in the heart, where it's, it's a warm, it's a comforting theology, but there's no substance to it. What we have here in Psalm 139 is theology that connects the head and the heart. As David is presenting God in all of his glory, he's doing so in a way that's very practical and very personal. And we're gonna see that uh, just as we walk through this over and over, David is just driven to worship God because of who he is. So let's walk through this together, starting in verse 1, and we're starting our first section, verse 1 through 6, the omniscience of God, that God is perfect in knowledge and that he knows everything. And this is going to be a central theme through the whole psalm. It's going to come back to this. God is perfect in knowledge. God is perfect in knowledge. Look at verse 1 with me. It says this, O Lord, you have searched me and known me. So David, right from the very beginning, 
he is talking, he is confessing this theology to God. He's not simply stating it, he's confessing it to God in a very simple term. You have known me and you searched me, verse one. And then from there, he starts to break down. What does that mean? What are the implications of God's knowledge? And we see that in verse two through four. Look at it with me. So in verse one, we saw that, that God knows who we are. Verse two, not only do you know who I am, but you know what I do. It says, you know when I sit, and you know when I rise up. Now, David does something here, and, and you'll see this often in the Psalms, but you'll see it a lot, especially here in Psalm 139, where he takes two opposites, and he says, you know this, and you know this, and the implication is that God also knows everything in between. He's using that to show that God knows everything. So not only do you know when I sit down, you also know when I rise up, and you know absolutely everything in between. You know everything that I do. Not only do you know who I am, not only do you know what I do, the second part of verse two, it says, you, we see, you know what I think. He says, you understand my thoughts from afar. What, a, what an amazing thing to think about God. Not even our thoughts are hidden from God. In verse three, you know also where I go. He says, you scrutinize my path and my lying down and are intimately acquainted with my ways. This word scrutinize is a word that's used to describe the winnowing process. When they would gather in all of their wheat, they would use a winnowing fork and they'd throw it up in the air and all the chaff would be driven away. They were scrutinizing the wheat and they would, they would go through and they would, my dad would actually have us do this. We would, when I was back in Kansas, we'd gather a bunch of wheat and we would submit it in the county fair. But before we could submit it, we'd have to lay it all out on a table. And we'd put a fan on it to blow as much of the chaff away as we could. And then we would go through as detailed as possible to get every little impurity out of that so that when we presented it before the judge, it was perfect. That's the word scrutinize that David is talking about here. He says, God scrutinizes my path and my lying down. God is, is very involved in the details of our day-to-day -day life. And David, again, showing the full spectrum, my path and my lying down and everything in between. Verse four, he says, you know everything I say. It says, even before there was a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, you know it all. So not only does the Lord know what we say, he knows what we say before we even say it. And in verse five, he expresses the idea that God's knowledge and closes us behind and before. If you have an ESV, it says, you, you hem me in, and I love that. It's kind of this imagery. I think of a pillow where you would sew three of the sides together, and you'd leave a little slit in the end, and you'd put all of your stuffing in, and at the very end, you sew that final little slit so that all four sides have a seam around them, and it's completely hemmed in, so there's absolutely no escape for that stuffing. That's the imagery that David is using here to talk about how God's knowledge is completely comprehensive on every side of us so that there is absolutely no way for us to be able to escape that perfect knowledge. And then David says in, in the end of verse five, and I love this, he says, you have laid your hand upon me as if that knowledge for David is a source of comfort, as if it's something that he longs for and he and he loves the fact that God is all-knowing. And then in this section, David concludes 
with this verse of just exclaiming who God is. He says, such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is too high. I cannot attain it. David, as he's just thinking and meditating on and comprehending and confessing the knowledge of God, is driven to what we see in verse six, to just praise God. And it's just this, it's just this final doxology. He just breaks out in this. It's similar to what we see in the book of Romans. Paul, he's talking about the, the mercy of God. And suddenly he says, oh, the depths and the riches of both wisdom and the knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. Both of these men, both Paul and David, saw the same thing. As they understood these characters and these attributes of God, it drove them to worship him. If you notice throughout this section, David is continually applying this to his own life. It doesn't seem like theology, does it? It really it is, though. It's expressing David's theology in a way that's very personal. And he is just in wonder that God knew even him. Now think about this. We live in a world where uh, there are 7.7 billion people. And if we think about the knowledge of God being extended to each one of those, it's not as if each person got one seven billionth of God's knowledge. That would be a very small portion of God's knowledge. God's knowledge and his awareness of each person extends in its fullness. Yet David was just in wonder that God knew even him. What a perspective. And it left David in a position where he was comforted. And, and, and I hope that as we continue to think about this knowledge of God, I hope that each one of us can be comforted by this as well. But there's also something that can be very disturbing about this, knowing that nothing we do is hidden from God. A.W. Tozer wrote a book called The Knowledge of the Holy, and in it he says this, that God knows each person through and through can be a cause of shaking fear to the man who has something to hide, some unforsaken sin, some secret crime committed against man or God. So we see the two responses. We see those like David who are just comforted knowing that God knows them. But then there are those who might be afraid. They might have something to hide. For those who are unsaved, the extent of God's knowledge should be something that drives fear in them because the God who knows all also stands as judge for all. And the fact that he knows even our thoughts means not just our actions, but our thoughts are accountable to him. Look now at verse seven. Verse seven through 12, David begins to express God's omnipresence. The fact that God is all present. He's present everywhere. And he begins with two rhetorical questions. He says this in verse seven. Where can I go from your spirit or where can I flee from your presence? The answer is nowhere. There is nowhere that we can go to escape this all-knowing God. There's no possible way for us to hide. And just like David did in his first section, he gives this kind of summary statement about God's perfect presence. And then he starts to break it down and he shows the extent of it and he shows how it works. Look at verse eight when we'll start to see this. He says, if I ascend to heaven, you are there. Well, of course God is there. 
God has established his throne in heaven, Psalm 103. God is the creator of heaven. I don't think it's hard for us to wrap our minds around the fact that God is present in heaven. But look at the next phrase. He says, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Now, Sheol is an interesting word. It's used as a euphemism all throughout the Old Testament for death. And it's often translated as the netherworld. This is a far away from heaven as you can get. When, Dave, or, or, sorry, when Jonah was fleeing from God, he said he saw himself in the belly of Sheol. It was, a, it was his way of trying to remove himself from the presence of God to the best of his ability. The point is that God is both in the far points of heaven and in the low points of earth. And like we saw in that first section, he exists everywhere in between. Look at verse nine. He says, if I take the wings of dawn, we're assuming this was written in Jerusalem, dawn would be as far inland as you can go. This is as far away from the sea. And then he says, if I dwell in the remotest parts of the sea. So this is all the way to the west. So we have the east extremity covered and we have the west extremity covered, inland and to the sea. Verse 10, even there, your hand will lead me and your right hand will lay a hold of me. So what David has done now is he has exposed every extremity of the compass and everything in between. He's left no possibility for where God's presence cannot dwell. Every single point is covered, north, south, east, and west, as far as you can go in any direction. And then if that's not comprehensive enough, look at what it says in verse 11. If I say, surely the darkness will overwhelm me, and the light around me will be night. Even the darkness is not dark to you, and night is as bright as day. Darkness and the light are alike to you. If you, if you try to hide in darkness, sometimes you can feel as if you are alone. Have you ever gone into a room, even if there's somebody else in that room, if it's completely pitch black and you don't hear anything, there's a, really a sense of aloneness. I used to take a, a groups of high school kids and we would go into caves and we would always go into the, as far back as we could go, we'd go into an open room, there'd maybe be 20 or 30 of us in there, we'd shut off all the lights and we'd all be completely silent. And it really feels like you're completely alone. Even though you know there's other people there. Even this type of darkness is not dark to God. Darkness, it says, darkness and light are alike to him. In fact, God created the light. So he himself does not need the light in order to be able to see. And then just as we saw in this first section on the knowledge of God, here as we look at the presence of God, there are two responses. For David, it produced awe and praise. The reality that, that God, this all-knowing God, was also all-present brought to him this just profound comfort that he would never be alone. We also see this um, in Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, Moses is, 
is preparing the people to go into the promised land. And it's like his final sermon to them. And he, he's wanting to give them comfort. And he says this right at the end in Deuteronomy 31. He says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or tremble at them. Why? For the Lord your God is the one who goes with you. What brought them comfort was knowing that God was always present. And this is the same truth that brought David comfort. One person said, no fiery dart can be so present with us as God is present with both the dart and the marksman. I love that. God is always present with everybody. A second response, and we also saw this in the first section, those who do want to hide, those who are afraid of God because he is a judge, a a passage like this, should fill somebody with fear who has something to hide because they know that there is no possibility of doing anything that God does not see. He knows all. Now look at the next section. I know we're going through this really fast. and There's just so much here, but we have to because it's a long chapter. The next section is verse 13 through 18, and here we see God's omnipotence the fact that God is all-powerful. And here we actually see David specifically looking at God's power in creating us. And again, David begins by talking about this high theology of God, and he does so in a way that is very personal. He's not talking about these attributes as if there's some abstract, distant, Um, academic knowledge, he's talking about them in a way that is directly applicable to his own life. And there is so much we can learn from that. Another thing, let me remind you, David is doing this as a confession. He is confessing to God these attributes in the same way that we could sing a hymn. Like we would say, a mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. We can confess those words to God as an act of praise and at the same time affirm the theology. That's exactly what David is doing here. He writes in verse 13, For you formed my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. David is expressing just the the intricacy and the detail that God went into in creating. God's God's not just somebody who would like paint an outside of a car and make it look nice. God creates and he fashions every single part of that car and puts it together so that when that product is complete, God could say, every single aspect of that vehicle is mine. I created it. I designed it. I placed it together. I did all of it. When David says, you wove me together in my mother's womb, he is showing that, that God placed much care, like, a, like a, someone who's making a watch, And he has all these little tiny instruments with the little gears and the little dials. And he's being so focused because everything is so delicate. This is the attention that God places in creating us. And David was just in awe of this. And it drove him to worship. Look at what it says in verse 14. This is how David responds. He says, I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, and my soul knows it very well. David is just amazed at what God is able to do. Now, often when we see, um, specifically here in this third section, these verses, you formed my inward parts, you wove me together in my mother's womb. Often people will use 
a passage like this to talk about abortion. And I don't think David was thinking about abortion when he wrote this. I think he was thinking about God. (laughs) And I think he was worshiping God. But there are so many profound things that we can take away from this. And and it is appropriate for us to think about what is going on in our country right now with abortion. I'm sure if you've kept up with the news at all, here in this last month, New York has legalized abortion all the way up until the point of birth. The governor of Virginia made a strange comment about abortion he, it, that seemed to support a post-birth abortion. Many people argue that, that this child or this tissue, whatever they say within them, is, isn't anything. It's just tissue. It's like an appendix or a gallbladder. But the language that we see here in Psalm 139, we can't escape it. It makes it so clear that God knows us He is intimately acquainted with us, not after birth, but David is actually speaking here of himself before he was born as if he was a human. From the very first moment of life in the womb, God has known you. He says in verse 15, my frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the depths of the earth. God is not only aware of your existence, but he has already known the days that were ordained for you. Wow, that is incredible. Look at, look at verse 16. He says, your eyes have seen my unformed substance. What is unformed substance? It's the beginning development of that in the womb. And in your book were all written the days that were ordained for me, when as yet there were not one of them. David is saying, before I lived a single day outside of the womb, God, the almighty creator, knew me. He already knew me. Now, this is a statement that recognizes God's complete foreknowledge. We've already talked about God's perfect knowledge. God knows when we sit. He knows when we stand. He knows what we do. He knows our thoughts. He knows everything about us in the present. Now here, David takes it a step further, and he's showing that God knows those things in advance. God has perfect foreknowledge, and he uses the word ordain, the days that were ordained for me. This word is used in Isaiah to talk about a potter who forms the clay. That word forms is the same word ordained. So the potter is ordaining the clay. He's molding it and making it. In Genesis 2, we see the same word where where God from the dust of the earth is ordaining man. He's forming man. He's creating man in his own image. And here in the Psalms, we see the same word. God is ordaining and he's, he's forming the days in advance before those days even existed. And David is just in awe of God's power in creating him. And he concludes with just, again, just breaking out in doxology and saying, how precious also are your thoughts to me, O God. How vast is the sum of them. If I should count them, they would outnumber the sand. When I am awake, I am still with you. David is just overflowing with gratitude. And isn't this a beautiful picture of worship? David's high view of God resulted in a high worship of God. I have a professor who always says, our high theology should produce a high doxology. And that's exactly what we see here in um, 
in Psalm 139, David's high view of God produced a high worship of God. Now, as we, as we think about some of these things, let me just ask a few questions to just evaluate where we're at with our worship this morning. Has our worship become dry? Maybe, maybe it's become repetitious. Maybe if you're really being honest with yourself, you might even say, I've actually kind of grown tired of some of these songs, of some of these sermons, of some of these prayers, of thinking about God's greatness. It's just become one more thing, one more Sunday, one more small group, one more Bible study. So many people have tried to fix this problem. They've tried to revamp their spiritual life or revamp the service by creating a worshipful experience. Maybe they'll have an emotional story or they'll bring out the fog machines, bring out music that evokes the emotion to try to create an environment that feels like we're worshiping. Ultimately, this worship is synthetic. It might produce, maybe for a short amount of time, a feeling that is worshipful, but ultimately, the only thing that can drive our worship of God is our knowledge and our thoughts of God. The only thing that can drive our worship of God is our thoughts of God. A high view of God results in a high worship of God. High theology results in high doxology. And that's exactly what David had. And it drove him to just break out in this, in this prayer that it almost seems kind of bizarre in verse 19 why he would pray some of these things. Why would he all of a sudden call for vengeance on these wicked people? But it makes sense when you see how David is infatuated with the character of God and those who have blasphemed that name, David would want to take vengeance on them. And that's what we see in verse 19. Listen to what he says in this prayer. He says, Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, men of bloodshed. For they speak against you wickedly, and your enemies take your name in vain. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord? And do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with an utmost hatred. They have become my enemies. Now, I need to note, this isn't... David, who has a personal grudge against these people, wanting to take vengeance out on them, this is David calling God to take divine vengeance on those who have blasphemed his name. David hates the thing that, things that God hates and loves the things that God loves. And it drives him to pray what we pray, what you see here, that God would remove those who have blasphemed the name of God. Finally, David concludes the psalm with these two verses, and I'm sure many of you are familiar with these verses, and I'm sure many of you have found great comfort in these verses. Verse 23 and 24. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thoughts, and see if there, have, if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the everlasting way. David has just prayed against the wicked, yet he recognizes that there is wickedness in his own heart. And so he prays these last two verses. Now David here, he's not giving God permission to search him and know him. If you think back to verse one, David has already confessed that, that God already knows me. He has already searched me. David here isn't giving God permission. Rather, 
he is confessing to God and asking God to reveal those things in him so that he can get rid of them, to bring those things to the surface. The prayer ultimately is that God would reveal the hidden evils of his heart. And there are four things in these last two verses, and I want to I break this down a little bit and talk about each one of them individually. The first one, he prays that God would search him and know him. This mirrors what we saw in verse one. God already knows us, and God already searches us. But this is a very, very serious prayer to pray. Because David here is, is asking God to reveal those things to him so that he can see them for what they are. And if we are to pray a prayer like this, we better be ready to do something about it, to remove those sins that maybe we've once been blinded to. Second, he prays that God would try him and know his anxious thoughts. This word try is a word to test. That God would, it's, it's a word used to, when you test a metal with fire. He's praying that God would test him and know his anxious thoughts. Third, we see David ask the Lord to see if there be any hurtful way in him. Again, he's asking God to make him aware of these sins that he might not have even noticed. And finally, David prays that the Lord would lead him in the everlasting way. That God would give him the strength to take those sins that he sees in his life and to remove them, to go in the way everlasting, to be honoring to God. There's a song that we've sung here a couple times, and we're going to sing it today as our closing, called, I Ask the Lord That I Might Grow. The song is about wanting to, to grow in love and in grace and wanting to be closer to God hoping that God would subdue, the song says, subdue my sin and give me rest, is what the song is longing for. But the very next verse of the song goes like this, and it's not what we would expect. Instead of this, he made me feel the hidden evils of my heart and let the angry powers of hell assault my soul in every part. This is David's prayer, that God would that God would expose those hidden evils of his heart and that he would then be able to remove them. What a great prayer. But we can't separate a prayer like we see in verse 22 and 23 from what we've seen in verse 1 through 22. It all goes together. We pray this prayer because of what we see in God. First, we have to know who God is and we have to understand his character and his attributes, the fact that God knows us perfectly and he is always present with us. And he possesses not only power to create us, but all the power to do whatever he wants. And that truth should drive us to this final verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxious thought and see if there be any hurtful way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. My hope this morning is that this passage brings you guys an incredible amount of comfort, as it should. Knowing that God is these things is one of the most comforting things we can think about when we think about God. But there are some here today who might be hearing some of these things, maybe for the first time, and it, and it might drive fear into you knowing that God sees your thoughts, that he knows your heart, that he sees the hidden evils that maybe even you don't see. 
Maybe you've never given your life to Christ and this feeling of fear has filled you. If that's you today, know this. God can save you and God can give you the same comfort that he gave to David. You need to place your life, your trust in Christ and submit to him as Lord and Savior. Let me, let me talk about that real quick and explain how that works. Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. This is everybody. Everybody stands as a sinner. Romans also says there's no, there's no amount of works of righteousness that we can do to achieve heaven, to achieve eternity. There is no good that we can do, no matter how much we try to do, can get us to heaven. And this is why the story of Jesus is so important that God came as both a perfect man and a holy God to pay a perfect sacrifice. Back in the day, in the Old Testament, they would, they would take these fattened calves in and they would slaughter them over and over and over again as a sacrifice to try to make themselves holy. But the reason they had to do it over and over and over again is because it was never perfect. Finally, Jesus came as that perfect sinless sacrifice to make a way for us. And that is a beautiful truth, a way for us to finally know the Father. Romans 10, 9, and 10 says that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's a confession with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, a willingness to submit to him as Lord, a belief and a true understanding that these events that we read in the scripture are actually true and that God really did raise him from the dead. But Romans doesn't stop there. He says, for with the heart, a person believes resulting in righteousness. When you believe resulting in righteousness, it means you're actually turning away from the previous life, from the sin that enslaved you, and you're turning to God. And God also gives you the power to do that. that and that is the beauty of the gospel. The power isn't found in you, it's found in him. For with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. I pray today that each one of us can leave here with that comfort, the same comfort that David had. Uh, just an overwhelming sense of comfort knowing that God knows us, that God is always present with us, that he has the power over us. And if, and if this is something that is new to you, if this is a message you've heard from the first time, I encourage you to talk to Pastor Wayne or Mark or one of the elders and, and think about how, how you can believe and result in righteousness. Amen? Amen? Let's pray. God, we praise you for your word. Lord, a psalm like Psalm 139 is just so special to see this theology written in such a profound way with so much depth and substance. But yet David, oh, David, he was able to present it so clearly in a way that was so practical. God, may that be an application in our own hearts. May we leave from here and may our ability to worship you be transformed because of what we know about you. We pray this in your name. Amen.